Well, I uh, seemed a little vague on my position, and it's because, um, let's see, in 1994, oh my goodness, you guys probably weren't even born yet, some of you. Um, so I started uh, much about you guys' age, 18, 19 years old. I went to work at a summer camp in northern Michigan. Um, it was one of the most impactful summers of my life. Um, and it started me on a course change in my life. I was initially going to go to school for law enforcement conservation, become a conservation officer, and kind of had that whole plan planned out. And then I went to summer camp, and I found out that ministry and kids and camping ministry is incredible, and the life change that happens is unprecedented. Um, through that time, I actually started out in the horse program. I started out as just a wrangler working, teaching horseback riding lessons. So, hoo-hoo, horse, horses. Here's a couple, I see. So, um, that took me on a, on a huge course change um, in life where I got involved in horses. I went to horseshoeing school and learned how to trim and chew horses' feet and learned that I didn't want to do that job because I am not built for that work. You need to be about this tall to do that job well, and I am not that. Um, so... While I was doing that, um, I just I found that the passion and the love for the ministry was far and away above anything else that I've ever done in my life. Um, through working through the horse program, um, I moved from Michigan to Montana about 10 years ago in 2006. I started running the horse program at Beartooth Christian Camp. And about two years ago, I got asked to step out of that role into a a role of the assistant to the uh, assistant camp director where I was helping kind of moving into more administrative role. And at the end of this summer, I actually got asked to step into the head cook position. So I have moved from wrangler to head wrangler to I am now the cookie at camp. I do all of the, the food prep for the camp. So yeah, things are a little bit different. Um, but that's the role that God has me in. Am I, am I thrilled to be the head cook? Not so much, but that's not the point. The point is, is that God has me there for a purpose, for a reason and for a time. And that's what camp is about, to come to a place for a purpose and for a time and have God impact your life. I think you guys have a video, a real quick promo video to show. Why don't you throw that up real quick, and then we'll move on. How many of you guys have attended a summer camp somewhere before in your past? Uh, how many of you, um, God changed your life at a summer camp? I'm one of those two. I grew up going to a small Wesleyan summer camp every summer, and that's where my spiritual journey began was at camp. And that's the thing that I love about camping ministry. Um, the thing that is so powerful as a staff person is that you are called upon to do something that you cannot do. You're called to spend 11 weeks loving kids for a week unconditionally, not because they're athletic, not because they're pretty, not because they do something special, but just simply because they are God's creation. He loves them and he's called upon you to minister to them where they are. And you can't do that by yourself. I found out my first summer, I was 18 years old. I was six foot four, 200 pounds, a little bit less than I am now. Um, 
But I thought that I could do anything. I, anything I grabbed a hold of moved. I had been working my almost my entire life. Uh, as a 13-year-old, I was busting concrete with, with um, jackhammers full-time, just as a summer job. Um, so I, I thought I had arrived at manliness. Two weeks into the summer season, two weeks into the summer season, I was sitting in our tack barn completely wasted. I had no energy. I had nothing left to give. I, I was sitting there, and the assistant head wrangler at the time, she sat down next to me and said, Bob, what's the matter? I said, I have a group of kids coming to the barn for me to teach, and I have nothing to give them. And she said, you're right. You don't. And I was like, thanks. That's, that's the... <laughs> That's the, the pump-up talk I was expecting. And she said, Bob, you can't do this job. You've been doing a great job, but you can't do this job on your own. This job is beyond you. This job takes something that you don't have. You've got to tap into Christ in your life. You have to see that it is his love that you're loving these kids with, not your own. And that's the ministry of camping ministry, the opportunity for God to do something in your life and to change you and the gravy and the outcome of that is the ministry that happens with the kids. So if you're interested in learning more about the summer camp ministry, feel free to come and talk to me after uh, chapel on Tuesday. There's the, the ministry fair. We'll have a booth set up. I didn't bring the booth with me because it is in Ohio right now. Um, but uh, the booth will be here on Tuesday, so we'll have all kinds of brochures and stuff. So stop by the booth and check us out, um, or you can check us out at Beartooth Christian Camp um, online. Just type in Beartooth Christian Camp. We're easy to find. We're right there. Um, speaking of loving people, it kind of jumps right into what I want to talk to you guys a little bit about. Um, one of my favorite pieces of Scripture is 2 Peter. If you guys have your Bibles and you want to turn there, we're going to spend our time in 2 Peter 1. Um, this section of Scripture is by far one of my favorites. I'm just going to read through it first, and then we're going to kind of unpack it. So 2 Peter 1, starting in verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us this precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. For this very reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. <clears throat> For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind and having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now to start with, this 
important little tidbit to the begin this. Um, this is a letter addressed to a group of people, right? We want to read this and go, oh, this applies to us. Well, this only applies to you if it is addressed to a person like yourself. And the address is to those who have faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you are a believer, if you have that faith, well, then you can by all means read on. If you do not, is there any point in reading on? Very little. Because if I am not saved, if I am not a person of faith, what is the point in me struggling and working to add to my life virtue and knowledge and goodness and godliness? What am I at the end of days? I'm a lost soul. So before we begin, if this isn't you, if you cannot say I am in equal standing with the saints, then there's people here I'm sure would love to talk to you. If we are all in agreement that we are in faith, then we can move on and we can begin to work on adding to our life virtue. Now, when I first started looking at this, I did something that was um, very simple. I started looking at definitions. What does it mean, virtue? It's not a word that I use very often in my life. I don't use the word virtue in my everyday talk. Basically, it's moral goodness, moral excellence. Now, I went to Hunter Education. It's kind of a fun story. Have you guys been through Hunter Education? I went through Hunter Education with my two daughters this year. Woohoo, they're going to hunt. Um, and it was interesting. They had a whole section. They spent almost more time not talking about gun safety, but talking about morals versus legal and how it applies to hunting. So the story goes, you and your friend are out hunting waterfowl. Any waterfowl hunters here? A few. So you shoot a duck, falls in the river, and it floats off down river, and you can't find it. Does that add to your bag limit or not? Legally, does that add to your bag limit? No. Your bag limit is the number of ducks that you're holding in your bag. How about morally? Is that duck dead? More than likely. Did you, did you shoot it? Yep. So morals and, and eth morally, do you want to shoot and fill your bag limit? Well, that's, that's, that's the quandary that they faced in Hunter Ed. They couldn't answer the question. So we're to add to our life virtue. As believers, I believe that question's really simple. Morals far more important to me than legal and illegal. What is the moral right thing for me to do? The moral right thing for me to do is to say, you know what, I shot that duck, it got away, it's, it's died. I'm adding that to my bag limit as an invisible duck, and I'm going to shoot one less the rest of the day. Now, if I'm hunting with an unbeliever, is that a testimony? Is that an opportunity to speak to why? Why, why aren't you going to shoot another duck? You know, I'm called to a higher standard than just legal. Um, we're all facing this coming soon. Is marijuana going to become legal? Probably within our lifetime, soon, marijuana across the board is going to become legal. Does that make it moral? Some of us have to wrestle with that question. So add to your faith virtue, and add to virtue knowledge. 
What are you guys doing right now? You're studying. You're coming to school. You're learning. You're seeking. The Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek after study. No. Learn. Psalms 119 says, how can a young man keep his way pure but by guarding it according to your word. If you don't study, if you don't seek the knowledge of God's word, how do you keep your way pure? How do you live virtuously? If you're not studying God's word and studying who God is and his character, how can you live morally? How can you live a virtuous moral life? You can't. So add to your faith knowledge. And knowledge, self-control. Now, self-control is the one that when I studied this, when I was studying this, I had to pause on this one because this isn't, you know, I, I can think of myself as a moral person. I can see that I'm studying and, and seeking knowledge. But self-control, for those of you, some of you wish you didn't know me so well, but some of you who know me um, know that self-control isn't one of my top spiritual gifts. I tend to speak sometimes without thinking. I tend to act um, slightly irrationally. Um, I've gotten way better. When I was in high school, um, I did some really dumb things because I hated the words, I bet you won't. <laughs> and that was like a challenge to me to do some really dumb things. Just to give you a, a really probably the worst example. Um, uh, me and a bunch of my friends were walking around in my, my local town, and uh, one of my friends said, dude, wouldn't it be really cool if somebody cut the cop's car tires? <laughs> and we talked for about three blocks, because the cop's house is right down the road. And we talked about it for about those three blocks, saying, oh, yeah, you, you know, da 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 and I, and, I, and I just got tired of the, I bet you won't, oh, yeah, I bet, I bet, I bet. So I pulled out my pocket knife, and yes, I did what I shouldn't have done. My self-control wasn't at a point that would prevent me from doing those kinds of things. And it was merely because somebody said, dude, I bet you won't. Self-control. So as I started reading this one, I kind of got hung up a little bit. And went, oh, self-control. This is where my Sharpie wants to come out. And I just kind of go... And we just highlight that with a Sharpie, right? And we're just going to leave that out. So I started looking, what is self-control? Temperance. Holding the passions and desires in check. Self-control is the ability to control one's emotions, behaviors, and desires in the face of external demands in order to function in society. Just working definitions of self-control. I believe the more you seek to know who God is, the more controlled you will become. I believe this list is in order for a purpose. I believe Peter, when he wrote this, wasn't an accidental, just haphazard list. I believe that he thought through how these feed and how these play in to each other. My understanding of virtue and morals should have a drastic effect on how controlled I am in myself, right? If I don't have any morals, well, where's my self-control going to be? I'm going to be stressing every time the phone rings, worried that the cops have figured out that I cut their tires, which I was for about three months. Every time the phone rang in my house, I was like, 
And I, and I got to deal with the, the consequences of, of those emotions. And add to your, your faith self-control. And self-control, steadfastness. Now, steadfastness, another reason why I had to ponder on these definitions, because steadfastness is, a, again, a word I don't use. Anybody here use the word steadfastness in your everyday conversations? So they become hard words for us to understand. But steadfast, patient and enduring. Now, I had an opportunity to deal with some patients. Um, I just got back from Florida. Uh, me and my family drove from Montana to Indiana, and we got into two 12-passenger vans with 20 of my other family members and drove from Indiana to Florida to spend a week in Florida going to the Disney parks. We went to Disney World, we went to Animal Kingdom, we went to a water park, and we went to Hollywood Studios, all 20 of us together, <laughs> eight of which were adults. So my patience, my endurance was greatly challenged as we drove from Indiana to Florida. I could, I could sit and I could drive, as I was driving, I could sit and listen to all of the childish things going on in the van, and I had two choices. I could be frustrated and annoyed at the stupidity of what's going on in the van, Anybody ever been there? What's my other choice? I can choose to say, you know what? We don't get together very often. We're a family. My kids are having fun. The cousins are having fun. It, it's a fun opportunity. And I can engage in the stupidity because, <laughs> because it's good. It's good to be together as a family. How do I choose... To look at the scenario, my steadfastness, my realization that I love these people will drive me to this. What drives me to this? My selfishness, my impatience, my lack of self-control causes me to say things over here that I will regret later. Add to your faith steadfastness, patience. You know, as a, when I was working with horses, um, virtue, knowledge, self-control, and steadfastness were characteristics I would love to train into horses. Those were the characteristics I wanted because those characteristics determine, is my horse going to respond to what I ask? Or is my horse going to react to what I ask? Now, what would be a reaction in a horse? Bucking, rearing, right? Throwing a temper tantrum. Those are reactions, right? I asked you to do something, and you blow up and you get mad. You react. A response is weighing my knowledge, weighing my, my morals, weighing what I believe to be right in the light of who God is, and responding correctly. It's the difference between reaction and response, deliberate versus impulsive. And this is what Christ asks of us. He asks us to live contrary to what our flesh requires. 
You have heard it said that it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other also. You have heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of, the, of your father who is in heaven. That goes against everything that's natural. What is your response when somebody hits you? What is your response when somebody wrongs you? I'm going to be upset. I'm going I'm to react. I'm going I'm to react their, to their actions against me, and I'm going to hurt them back. Is that normal and natural? Yeah. That's normal, natural response. It's, it's not the godly response. The godly response is, how many of you, I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember, uh, when the guy walked into the, the Amish school and shot a bunch of the Amish kids. How did that Amish community respond to him? Did they call for his death? Did they, did they call for punishment? They went to the funeral. They went to his funeral and they comforted his family. Response, reaction. See the difference? And that only comes through adding to your faith virtue and knowledge and steadfastness and self-control. Next, add to your faith godliness. Now we're starting to get into some things that aren't just are just are dealing with our personal reactions to things. Now we're starting to talk about godliness. And I was like, godliness, godliness. So I did some more research into definitions. The word that struck me that was very interesting was piety. Another word that we don't use a whole lot, but we do use it some, and is piety to be a pious person, positive or negative, in today's society. If you're called pious, are you going to go, whoo-hoo, I'm pious? Or are you going to go, oh, I'm sorry. I'll try not to do that again. Yeah? Guys, piety is a good thing. Piety is the veneration that, uh, see, it is a virtue that can, can I where I lost my spot? Piety is a virtue that can mean religious devotion. A common element in most concepts of piety is humility. I don't want to, I'm sorry, I don't want to be, I don't want to be humble, Sorry. No, piety is a good thing. It's the veneration, the holding up of the sacred. If you watch a comedian and they start going off on Jesus or God or church, how do you feel? Do you kind of go, oh, that's kind of funny, and keep watching? Or do you go, mm, nope, I'm done. You were funny, dude. I was enjoying it, but you've crossed the line in my book. I don't find that kind of humor funny. You guys been there? That feeling of, hey, you're crossing a line into something that's important to me. That's piety. Add to your faith goodness. Godliness, sorry. Add to your faith godliness. How many, why don't you guys think about this? Think of the, the, the most godly people that you can think of in your life that, that really capsulize that concept of godliness. Do you got who you're thinking of? Anybody here find that that person is impatient or intemperate? 
Or are they a very temperate person? Are they a very controlled person? Are they a very patient person? Hmm. So we're not going to find a whole lot of impatient, godly people, is what we're saying, right? So we have to add, we're building on these blocks. These are building blocks that we are growing and they are connected to each other. I'm not going to be a patient, an impatient, godly person because my failing is in my impatience. So I need to go back and work on my virtue and my knowledge of who God is long before I start dealing with my patience, right? My patience will grow as my knowledge of God and my knowledge of his rules and his morals grows in my life and my self-control grows. Then I can become more of a patient person. I'm not going to be a patient person if I'm not controlled, right? If I have no self-control, how patient am I going to be? Not very, because I don't have any control to control my patience. Brotherly affection, a strong attachment to Christ's flock, a feeling, feeling each as a member of our own body. How much do we care and love the people in our body? How much are we willing to go out of our way to, to help the people in our body? Not just the people we like, but the, the brothers that annoy us. Anybody here, don't raise your hand, but how many people here have somebody in this room that kind of annoy them from time to time? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. Just, just think about it. And if you do, that person is a brother in Christ. And you're annoyed by them? That person is struggling with the sins in their own life. And yet all you have is annoyance for them? We are so blessed to live in a country where we can openly worship and enjoy fellowship together. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, he unpacks this a little bit and he talks about the idea that there are Christians in this world who live their entire faith journey alone, in solitude, by themselves. Because every single person they know will not treat them nicely if they present their faith outwardly. There are, there are believers who are stuck in prison that are living their faith alone in prison. And here we sit annoyed with my brother who I can fellowship with because he clicks, he sucks the soup off of his spoon when he eats. Whatever the thing is. Brotherly affection. And finally, add to your faith love. I find it interesting that love is the last thing on this list. To go back to that person that annoys you. You are confiding in another, another brother who says, man, you know, this person just really irritates me, just drives me crazy. I can't love them. Do you know the advice I've given that person? You just have to love them more. You have to try and love them more. Is that good advice? As I've studied this, I've come to the conclusion that no, I, I, that's bad advice. To tell somebody to just love the person more is missing the mark. Why do they not love their brother? Because they're missing something over here in virtue. Maybe in their knowledge of God. Because I can only love because God loved me. So to tell this person, well, you just need to love them more. Just try to love them more. Who's the, who am I putting the emphasis on? 
the person. Well, you have to try harder. Sorry, can't try harder. You don't have it in you. You don't have the ability to love them more. You're not loving them is a, it's, it's a, what's the word? I just lost it. When you're sick and you have an illness, we can't tell what the illness is, but you have a symptom. There it is. Your lack of love is a symptom of a problem in your life. So we're going to deal with the symptom? No, we got to deal with the problem. We got to come clear back over here and go, well, what's your, what's your moral life like? Where are you, how are you living morally? How much are you studying to understand and seeking who God is? Because I'm not going to love if I'm not being patient, which probably is the reason I'm not loving that person because I'm not being patient. So who's the problem? Them or me? And to wrap this up in conclusion, Peter ends it. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. You forgot. The reason you're not loving, the reason you're not adding these things to your faith is because you forgot to preach the gospel to yourself. You've forgotten that you're not everything, that you're not a righteous person unto yourself. That your righteousness is alone in Christ's death and resurrection. You've gotten off base. You're nearsighted. You've forgotten that you've been cleansed from your sins. So you got to go back and recognize that before you can start dealing with the outcomes. For if these qualities, let's see, where is it at? For whoever lacks these qualities are nearsighted, you've forgotten your four, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent and make your calling and election sure. For if you are practicing these qualities, you will never fail. If you're doing these things, you're not going to fail. Our failure comes when? When we get off base, when we, when we forget to do these things. Ministry. How many, how many of you guys are looking at getting involved in ministry, full-time ministry? Putting yourself out there to minister to others. Without applying these principles to your life, you're going to be a terrible minister. You're going to be a clanging gong. Sound familiar? If, you're, if you plan on ministering to anybody in your life, which we all should be, we have to build on these building blocks. We can't just ignore it and go, ah, eh, not important. I'm a good person. If you want to challenge, get involved in a summer camp. If it's not this one, I, I can't talk up summer camps enough. How many of you guys are actively involved in a summer camp somewhere and you're like, oh yeah, I'm going back to that other camp? You know, great. Summer camp, I don't care where you go. Summer camp is an amazing way to spend a summer. It'll teach you things about yourself. It'll show you things about yourself. It'll reveal things in your life. Um, that's my passion. 
I'm sure there's people here that are going to be going on missions trips this summer. I'm not here to say you shouldn't. I'm here to say if God is calling you into a summer camp, 11 weeks of ministry, give us a look. And if it fits, awesome. If not, God bless you on your journey. Let's pray. Dear Father, I just thank you for the opportunity to, to open your word today and to share and to, to hear your words out loud and how they even speak into my own life. I just pray a blessing upon the, these, these young people as they look to the future of, of things to do and places to go and um, your plans, God, you are sovereign and you have a plan and a direction for them. And I just pray that uh, you will reveal it in your time and that they will be of, of a soft enough heart to hear and to understand and to go where you call. I just pray this in your name. Amen.